The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody doing good? Are you as excited as I was to see the sun come out on Friday? Weren't you excited for it? Man, the rain and the cold was good, but nothing beats the sunshine. And so I had a buddy that texted me this morning from Columbus, Ohio, and he had like three feet of snow, something like that. I'm like, hey, it's 75 here, so we're doing good. Hey, hope you're well this morning. Glad you're here. Welcome to Story City Church. We're in the second week of a series we're calling Mission 555. If you happen to bring a Bible this morning, go ahead and take it out. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 10 today. We just got one verse. So go ahead and take it out. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we're going to put that on the screen here in just a moment. Um, Hudson Taylor was probably and is probably one of the most important missionaries in Christian history over the last 2,000 years. Uh, Hudson Taylor was a British missionary from Britain. He gave 51 of his 73 years of life to serve the people of China, to tell them about Jesus, that their life might be changed. And Hudson Taylor has some quotes that um, every Christian is probably familiar with. But I wanted to start out this morning in the second week of this series we're calling Mission 555 with the Hudson Taylor quote. And this is what he said. There are three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. And then it is done. His second quote that I wanted to share with you this morning is this. And you may have heard it before. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. If you're a Christian this morning, and you were here last week, and you were here as we introduced this series we're calling Mission 555, as you think about living missionally, as you think about living the life that you currently have, that you, that you currently live here in this city, as you think about living it intentionally and missionally so that other people might hear about Jesus, some of you may think, like Hudson Taylor says, every great work of God at first seems impossible. Listen to what else Hudson Taylor says. He says, I'm more convinced than ever that if we were to take the directions of our master and the assurance that he gave to his first disciples more fully as our guide, we should find them to be just as suited to our times as to those in which they were originally given. Finally, Hudson Taylor says, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. (laughs) We're in the second week of this series called Mission 555, and I told you last week we're on this journey to try to figure out how to live our lives that we currently have. I want you to hear me very clearly. If you've ever been through a series in church that talks about living missionally and helping others see Jesus in you, I want you to understand we're not trying to add anything to your life. We're trying to help you understand the life you currently have is perfectly positioned to live out the Great Commission that God has given us. And some of you may say, well, what is that great commission? Matthew chapter 28, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. 
If you uh, came in this morning and received uh, one of these cards, it's a black card that says Mission 555. Can you do me a favor? Will you take it real quick and hold it up so that I can see it? Will you just everybody grab that card? Will you do me a favor? I just want you to put that card in front of you for just a moment. Um, I want us to do something with this card at the end of our service. I told you last week, if you happen to be here for the start of this new series, that this series is going to be one of the most practical series we've ever done. I want to help you, I want to help our church live intentionally on mission for Jesus. But can I do something at the very front of this message today? I have found, both in my own life personally, as a pastor over about the last 18 years, I have found that the church in general, Christians in general, have a fear about living on mission. And there's a lot of reasons, and I want to address some of those reasons up front here this morning. But what I hope to do throughout the course of this series is to try to release some of the fear of living on mission. Try to release some of the fear of living intentionally the life that you already have in such a way that people around you might see Jesus. And I want to do that this morning by sharing with us what I believe is the most basic way to obey. Jesus's great commission. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse one, the author is Paul. And Paul says this, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire, so good. My heart's desire and my prayer. We're going to talk in just a moment about how these two things are intermingled. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. Now, who is for them? Paul has spent the entire book of Romans making an argument, a very good argument, that people apart from Jesus may be religious, but they don't have a relationship with God. And in fact, he goes on to say, he says they are not saved. And so in chapter 9, Paul goes on and talk about people who are religious, yet they don't know God. And then he starts chapter 10, verse 1, with this statement, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, the people he just talked about, is that they might be saved. Uh, over 18 years of, of ministry, it's so obvious to me, and it's obvious in my own life at times, that many of us are afraid to live missionally, to speak our beliefs because of what we perceive to be the intended effects of living missionally. What are some of those effects? Some of us have this concern about living in the lives of other people um, and believing that if I lived missionally with my neighbors, if I lived missionally with the people that I do business with, if I lived missionally with my family, if I lived missionally with my friends, there could be some intended effects on my life. What are those effects? One, we may believe that if I live missionally, it may affect my job. When I was a youth pastor years ago, I had a student. He was 16 years old. He was working at a job, and his life was Jesus. God had changed his life as, uh, as a young kid, and in his job, he would talk frequently about Jesus. The manager at the place where he worked came to him one day and said, Garrett, you need to stop talking about Jesus while you're at work. And Garrett very politely said, well, Jesus is my life, and it's what I talk about all the time. And so Garrett continued to talk about Jesus at his work until he eventually got fired for sharing the gospel. Now, that wasn't the reason that was written in his employee profile, but that was the reason he got fired. 
I imagine many of us believe, especially in this town and in this city, that if I lived missionally, if I lived on purpose in such a way that people knew Jesus because of how I lived and what I say, some of us have a fear that it may affect my job. Now, if you're 35, whether you're single or married, it's different at 35 than it is at 16, right? You've got bills to pay. You got a mortgage to pay. You got rent to pay. You got to keep a house, a roof over your head. You got to put food on the table. Maybe you got a family to feed. And I understand that at 35 or 40 or 70, it may be different, but many of us live in fear that if I live missionally, it could affect my job. But can I ask you this morning, does God not care about your job? Does God not care about your stomach? Does God not care about your house? Does God not care about the roof over your head? Does God not care about your livelihood? Secondly, some of us believe if I were to live missionally, it may affect my friends. <laughs> I personally believe that every Christian, and I do, I believe 100% of us in this room this morning have people in our lives that don't know Jesus, don't want to know Jesus, are far from God. I believe that every Christian should have those people in their lives. Do you know the people who are the greatest culprits of not having people who don't know Jesus in their lives? You know who they are? They're pastors. They're people that work in churches. They're people that work in ministries. We have to fight and to work hard to be in the lives of people that don't know Jesus. And some of us believe if I were to live if I were to live in such a way that people saw Jesus, it may affect my friends. Some people may distance themselves from me because of my faith. Thirdly, some people may believe that if I were to live missionally, it could affect people's perception of me. What do they think about me? What do they think about what I believe? Can I just speak honestly, passionately, and compassionately to you this morning at Story City Church? The reality is some of us are so consumed with ourselves, with our image, with our perception, that it's not unreasonable to ask, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus in my job? Where is Jesus in my home? Where is Jesus in the way I conduct business? Where is Jesus um, in the way I interact with the parents of kids on my, uh, on my kids' baseball team? Where is Jesus in all of this? The reality is the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, listen to what it says. Indeed, all, all includes everybody who's a believer, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, listen to what Paul says here, will be persecuted. I want you to process that for just a moment. If you are a Christian who is known in your family, in your job, in your relational networks, in the businesses that you frequent, in your neighborhood, if you are known as a person who cares to obey God rather than please men, listen to me. There will be consequences. As a believer, that's something that all of us have to wrestle down when we decide whether or not we're going to live missionally. And can I say to you, for some people, the thought of consequences in my life for being known that I'm a Christian are enough to cause some people to abandon what they thought was faith. But I want to say to us what some people may think is faith and they abandon it because they believe if I'm known as a Christian, there will be consequences. What they thought was faith may actually be nothing more than religion. Can I say to you this morning, religion is worthless. Religion is worthless. There's no joy. There's no pleasure. 
There's no purpose in religion. We're not talking about religion this morning. We're talking about a relationship with God that flows from God into the lives of others. Can I say this to you? And you may want to write it down this morning. I want to go further and say faith may not be mature until it is willing to endure the consequences of obedience. Faith may not be mature until it is willing to obey the consequences of obedience. Last week, we were in Luke chapter 5. If you were here and you remember, if you missed it, I want to encourage you to listen to the podcast. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and after he speaks to a crowd, he looks at a couple fishermen, and he says, I want you to put the boat out into the water, and I want us to continue to fish. Peter and his associates have been fishing all night long, and they look at Jesus reluctantly, and they say, Jesus, we've been fishing all night. Uh, I I don't mean to be um, a disappointment to you. I don't mean to be discouraging, but we sort of know what we're doing, and there weren't any fish last night. There probably aren't going to be any fish this morning, but if you say so, we will fish. And when they put the nets down, we titled the message last week, Let the Nets Down, When they put the nets down, the catch was so great, the scripture says the nets began to sink, the boats began to break. And at that point, Jesus looks at Peter, and he gives Peter a vision for his life. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, just as you have caught a great um, uh, amount of fish, in the future, your life is going to be characterized as a person who will fish for the souls of humanity. Then Peter responded. You remember how Peter responded? Peter responded with this fear. And Jesus perceives this fear. And at the end of the passage last week, Jesus looks at Peter in his fear. And he's looking at you this morning. And he says to Peter, do not fear. Now, somewhere between, Luke's resp- I mean, uh, somewhere between Peter's response in Luke chapter 5 and the, the, the founding of the church, the death of Jesus, the founding of the church, and the early apostles found in the church in Acts chapter 4, what we see is a man who's no longer afraid of other men and other women and other authorities, but he is more afraid of not doing what God has asked him to do than doing that which pleases him. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture Peter and John reply back to the authorities who are threatening violence, who are threatening to put them in prison, and Peter and John say to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God, you be the judge. But as for us, I love it. As for us, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The consequence for obeying God was that they were not only put in prison once in Acts chapter 4, they were put in prison again in Acts chapter 5, but if you read the totality of the story, in Acts chapter 12, Peter was put in prison a third time. And then we have this historical account of Peter's life and the end of his life. It's historically accepted that Peter was crucified for his faith. Some of his last recorded words before he was crucified are these. But it is time for you, Peter... To surrender your body, he's saying this to himself, to those who are taking it. Take it then, you whose duty it is. I request you, therefore, executioners, to crucify me head downwards in this way and no other. We have 2,000 years of Christian history. 2,000 years of Christian history, we have literally thousands of records of the martyrdom of Christ followers. If we understand scripture, we know that 11 out of 12 apostles lost their life. They were martyred for their faith. 
In July 17th, 180, 12 early Christians were beheaded. They were told by a Roman administrator, you can have forgiveness of our Lord the emperor if you only return to your senses. To which they replied, we have no other to fear save only our Lord God who is in heaven. We have the record of William Tyndale who was choked to death and then burned at the stake on October the 6th, 1536. We have the record of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was hung by fascist Germany in 1945. We have the record of missionary Jim Elliott who was speared to death by the Alka Indians, the very people he attempted to make friends with in order to share the gospel. We have the record in January of 2010 of eight Christians who were killed leaving their church by a group of radical Muslims. This week I met with a man who is uh, from San Diego but he lives in a Middle Eastern country of which I cannot tell you the name of the country and I cannot tell you his job but he went to this Middle Eastern country to start a business with the very purpose of having business as a platform to share the gospel. Why? In the country he went to and lives in currently, it's illegal to be a Christian. And so he started a business and he uses the business as a platform to help people understand and know the gospel. I cannot tell you the country. I cannot tell you his name. I cannot put him on stage. I can't even tell you the name of his business for fear that there may be retribution. This is a man who will gave his life to go to a country where Jesus was not known to make himself known. Last year, uh, just a few months ago, an American pastor was released from prison in this country for, uh, after he had spent two years in that country. He was charged with terrorism. He was accused of Christianization, which was considered a hostile act. I've got a friend in this very city. He's an Armenian, and he comes from a country in the Middle East. When he came to faith in Christ, he fled that country as a refugee because his life was in danger. I have a former student of mine in a former student ministry that I led. He came to faith in Christ in a Middle Eastern country. His mother came to faith in Christ as well. Then his sister came to faith in Christ as well, and they had to flee the country. Why? Because his father threatened to kill him. Why all the martyrdom talk this morning, Pastor Matt? <laughs> because I want to make a point. I want to make a point that the threat to us in Los Angeles this morning, it's not the same threat that Christianity has experienced around the globe for two millennia. When you came in this morning, nobody was barring the doors. When, when you sit in church this morning and leave, you can leave freely knowing that you're not going to be killed because you were in church. When you, when you leave this afternoon and you let it be known that you came from a certain faith or no faith background, yet you gave your life to Jesus, you're not going to be killed because you converted to Christianity. Nobody's going to be burned at the stake for opposing atheistic views. Yet listen to me. I've been a pastor long enough. I've experienced it in my own life. Many of us live as if the danger and the threat to our lives is this outward physical threat. And what I want to say to us this morning, the threat to us this morning in Los Angeles, Angeles is not outward. The threat is inward. The threat is inward. This belief that if I live in such a way that other people know about Jesus, there will be consequences and we have to wrestle to the ground. Is my faith mature if I'm not willing to, um, uh, if I'm not willing to experience the consequences of my obedience? But you know what, this morning, I, I, I want to address something a little bit deeper. I think it begs us to dig a little bit deeper. And I wonder this morning, I wonder this morning if you're a believer. And not everybody in the auditorium is a believer this morning. And by the way, if you came just visiting if you came knowing I, I, I don't have faith, I, I, I'm not 
uh, I'm not good with God, if you came just exploring this morning, I want to say we're so glad you're here. But if you are here this morning and you know Jesus and yet you, you, you have hesitancy about living on mission, can I dig a little bit deeper this morning and ask you, I wonder this morning if we view those in our networks those around us, those in our family, those in the businesses we frequent, those in the friendships that we make, those in the neighborhoods where we live, I wonder if we view those people the same way Paul viewed them. How did he view them? Paul had sort of two categories, and it was his life's mission. You know Jesus, and you're saved, or you don't know Jesus, and you're not saved. I wondered this morning if we believe like Paul believed. What is that? That apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, apart from placing our trust and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that apart from that alone, we don't have eternal destiny. We don't have a saving relationship with God. We don't have full and complete access to God. I wonder if we see people the way Paul sees people. Paul writes the book of Romans. It's this rich theological text. And he writes it on salvation. He spends the entirety of chapter 9 making this argument about people who are religious but are not saved. People who have no relationship with God, but they consider themselves religious. Can I say to us this morning, I'm intentionally addressing some of the fears and some of the mental inward thoughts that we have about living missionally. And these thoughts, as we read the scripture, run countercultural in our world. They're hard concepts to grasp in our world for things like, this idea known as secularism. It says we can only know truth based on the material world that we see apart from religion. In other words, we cannot derive truth from religion. We must derive truth from what we see. And so processing whether or not people know Jesus, whether they're saved or not saved, is difficult in a culture that elevates secularism. It's also difficult in a culture that elevates pluralism. What is pluralism? It implies that all religious paths are equally valid. It's difficult to process what Paul says because of the post-Christian culture that we live in. What does post-Christian mean? It means it's a term that implies a loss of the Christian worldview in a particular society. Barna, who does a lot of research in America about religious views and religious practices and religious beliefs, has found very recently that one out of every two people in Los Angeles that you encounter today, one out of every two people are considered post-Christian. Meaning, they don't filter the, wor the world around them. They don't filter the world around them from the lens of a biblical perspective. They don't filter truths from a biblical perspective. They don't filter morality from a biblical perspective. They don't filter everything, whether it's politics or, or how to raise kids from a biblical perspective. Now listen to me. America is still thoroughly Christian in its worldview. It's changed dramatically in the last 50 years. 1961, there's a French theologian named Gabriel Vahanian. He argued in his book called The Death of God that Western civilization had lost all sense of the sacred. It sort of abandoned any sort of transcendental purpose to which he concluded in his book the words, God is dead. So I bring that before us as a church this morning. In a series, we're talking about living missionally. And I ask you, so how does the church respond with the gospel in a post-Christian, secular, pluralistic culture? And in a culture that doesn't view one religious view and thought and perspective as being the only acceptable religious view. 
I want to say to us this morning, the church in America is declining. The stats are obvious. They're plain. And I want to suggest it's a result of how we've responded to post-Christian, secular, pluralistic society. How have we responded? I think primarily in one of two ways. Number one, Number one, we've, we've become aggressive in our evangelistic approaches. Now listen to me. You, you understand. You've seen this approach to evangelism. Um, it's probably everything that most of us loathe about Christianity in Los Angeles. It's the approach that says, if they don't agree with me, then I'm going to ram it down their throat until they finally swallow it. On January the 1st, I was at the Rose Parade over in Pasadena, and I think I alluded to this last week, but... Uh, before the parade started, every so often there were people that would walk uh, down Colorado Boulevard, and every few minutes or so there would be people with signs and massive banners with, with statements and sayings on them, and they would have microphones, and they would shout with people and have smug looks on their face. At one point, there was this lady walking by herself, a microphone strapped to her shoulder, a microphone in her hand, and as she's walking by, she's looking at people in the crowd, and she's literally yelling at them. And people are obviously yelling back. I wanted to be one of them. People are yelling back at her, and the more people shout at her, the angrier she gets. You've seen this approach to evangelism. As our country, as our culture and Western civilization becomes less and less Christian, has less and less of a Christian worldview, one of the ways we've responded is aggressively with the gospel. Can I say to us this morning, that type of evangelism is condescending. It's aggressive. And by the way, it's not persuasive the same way I feel about your Facebook post. <laughs> if you think you're persuading anybody, you need to understand you're only preaching to the crowd. But listen, we look at these aggressive approaches to evangelism and we decide, you know what? It's not being done well. I'm just going to extract myself to appease those that I live around. Evangelism is being done bad, so I'm going to extract myself from the mission of God. Can I say to you this morning, you cannot extract yourself from the mission of God because people practice bad evangelism habits. You don't not get married because you see people who didn't do marriage right. You get married and do it the right way. The second way we've responded in a post-Christian, secular, pluralistic America is we've sort of reclused into our own safety and our own comfort. And as we have done so, we preach a pluralistic gospel to those around us. This is the opposite, by the way, of aggressive evangelism. Aggressive evangelism is in your face and not very persuasive. Reclusive Christianity is the exact opposite. We're not in your face. We're not even in your life at all being known as a Christian. And by doing so, by our words or lack thereof and our actions that don't demonstrate Jesus, what we are actually preaching is a pluralistic gospel, meaning we've stopped telling people about Jesus. And if you believe your way that you believe about God is okay, and I believe my way about God is okay, we can still coexist because both of us are right. Nothing is more antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to what Jesus said. It's antithetical to everything the disciples said. It's antithetical to everything the early church practiced. And if I believe that, if I believe that someone else can be okay with God apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then I have a faulty understanding of the gospel. And why would Jesus suffer in the first place? can I say to you this morning, Christianity 
is a religion that is missional and evangelistic. Christianity is a religion that's advancing, helping people understand there is a better way to life. There is joy and meaning and purpose in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we believe that hearing about Jesus and responding to faith in his work on the cross is the only way people change. Anything else, listen to me, leads to death. And that's what we believe in Christianity. That's what we celebrate when we sing. There's so much in our Western culture that's celebrated and so much that is accepted, except that Jesus is the only way for somebody to be saved, except that Jesus is the only way for somebody to spend eternity with God. Listen to me, church. Would you look me in the eyes? We believe people need to be saved. I understand that makes some of you uncomfortable. I understand that makes some of you nervous. Listen, we cannot read a page of scripture and extract anything else except for the belief that people need to be saved. You know, oftentimes we're nervous telling people that they need to be saved. If we're not telling people that they need to be saved, then listen to me. We're not believing that salvation is necessary for somebody to see Jesus and spend life after death and experience the fullness of everything God offers. If that's what we believe, then we're not practicing Christianity. We may be practicing religion, but it's not Christianity. Can I ask you this morning, do you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ saves? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ saved? Paul believed that people need salvation from their sins, forgiveness through Jesus Christ alone, and the entirety of Romans is that argument. Listen, Paul's not just this theological Christian that believes, you know what? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but practically a universalist, meaning I believe this, but my life and my words in the lives of people around me have no indication that that's the case. For most of Christianity, we're theologically in the category where we believe Jesus Christ is the only way, but practically we are universalists, meaning you can believe whatever you want to and you'll be okay with God. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know it to be the case. I've done a lot of funerals in my life of people that demonstrated no evidence of God in their life, yet people and family members in the moment would say, I know they're an angel in heaven looking down on me. Paul was not just theologically in the category of believing Christ is the only way for salvation. He gave his life to the ministry of the gospel. Romans chapter 15, verse 20. He says this, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named. Paul gave his life to the mission of, help, of helping to expose Jesus to people around him. And so Paul followed Jesus. We've got the record of that over in the book of Acts. We've got the record of his transformation in the book of Acts. He gave his life to telling people about Jesus, and this is what he gave his life to. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you long for people to be saved? That's what I ask you if you were here last week to pray and ask the Lord to mind your heart. Do you have a missionary heart that is implicit in being a follower of Jesus? 
Being a follower of Jesus implies that you are for his mission. Can I speak to you today just for the remaining few moments? If you experience fear as it pertains to being a follower of Jesus, can I just be honest with you? As your pastor who's been here along with Tyler for the last four years now, I've watched this thing go from about 15 people in our home to this today and then another service today. I've watched God do what only God can do. Can I tell you how I spent my last Sunday? I went home last Sunday and I literally texted some friends of mine. Well, I may have killed the church today. Asking people to live missionally. I know the fear in your heart. I experienced that own fear in my own heart. Can I speak to you just for the remaining few moments? If you experience that fear as it pertains to living and telling others about your faith, you can write this down, take a picture of it on the screen, but I want you to hear this from me. The simplest form of obedience as it pertains to evangelism is prayer. You're like, pastor, I'm not there yet. I'm not there to tell my neighbors yet. Pastor, I'm not there to, to speak to people that I do business with. Pastor, I'm not there to, to do that with my family. I'm not there yet. The simplest form of obedience as it pertains to evangelism is prayer. If you can't speak it yet, can I say to you, you can still engage in the work of evangelism and you can labor on behalf of people who don't know Jesus. And so most of us aren't prepared to speak our faith verbally. You know what you can do? You can pray. Most of us probably are afraid to talk about Jesus with our coworkers, and you can pray. Most of us don't even know. If I had the opportunity, what would I even say to my neighbor about Jesus? Then you can pray. Prayer is the simplest form of obedience when it comes to evangelism. Listen to Paul's words again in Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God. They're connected. They're tied together. As Paul is laboring in prayer for those around him that don't know Jesus, his heart supernaturally is burdened for those people. Can I ask you this morning, is your heart unaffected by the salvation of your family? Is your heart unaffected by the salvation of people you work with? Is your heart unaffected by the salvation of people you do business with? Is your heart unaffected by the salvation of the neighbors around you? Is your heart unaffected by the salvation of the friends that you make? Do you have a concern for lost people? Can I suggest to you this morning, when you pray for them, God supernaturally increases your burden for them. As I look over now half of my life as a believer, I would say the most fruitful times of living missionally was when I was in seminary. And I went to class with people that were believers, but I worked a job where it was not ministry. I was actually a server in a restaurant. I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you what restaurant it was because it was not a good one. But I worked as a server in a restaurant. It was probably the most fruitful time in my life living missionally. And I look back and I, I'm convicted even as a pastor now for 18 years thinking, my gosh, there, there are sweeter times in my past and there have been closer to the present of me living missionally for people. And I would work with people in the restaurant and God would begin as I would pray for them to give me a burden for them. A burden for people like Sarah, a teenager who went to Wakefield High School. While we worked together, Sarah's grandmother passed away. I would frequently talk to Sarah about the gospel, 
about Jesus. When her grandmother passed away, by the way, death is a great opportunity to speak to people about Jesus. I remember very plainly and clearly and vividly after work one night, we sat down at the first table in the bar area and we began to speak passionately about Jesus and the gospel. And it wasn't the first time I'd ever done it. She knew I prayed for her. She knew I was a Christian. She knew that I longed for her to know the joy and the purpose in Jesus. And as we sat there and we talked about Jesus, she began to cry. I began to cry because she knew that my heart was burdened for her to know Jesus. And I had a burden for people like Rebecca and Jessica, single moms that worked in the restaurant. A second job to provide for their kids. Jessica had a son named Hunter. He's now 20. Rebecca had a young son named Jesse, and I had a burden for these single moms to know Jesus. I prayed for them. I invited them to go to church with me on Easter Sunday. Rebecca and Jesse eventually went to church with me on Easter Sunday. I prayed so hard that the pastor would preach the gospel that Sunday morning. I prayed for them frequently. I wept for them and with them. I took them to church with me. I believe my burden for them increased when I prayed for them. I want to be honest before you and say, the last 18 years have been as fruitful as those few years of my life. It becomes harder as a pastor to be in the lives of people. But I want to say to you, I'm intentional and purposeful, and our family is being as intentional and purposeful as we possibly can to be in the lives of those who don't know Jesus. And can I begin this series as we talk very practically over the next few weeks to encourage you. If you can't speak the gospel, you can still engage in the gospel in people's lives by praying for them. You got something to write with. Would you do this or take out your phone? I'm going to quickly do this and then we're going to be done. Pastor Matt, how can I pray for people to know Jesus? How can I pray for people to know Jesus? Number one, you can pray that God would open their hearts to believe the gospel. Very simply. You can pray that God would open their hearts to believe the gospel. I'm going to ask you to do something practical with these five things. So take them down. Take a picture. Acts 16, 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. We believe salvation is initiated by God and people must respond. You can begin by praying that God would open the hearts of unbelievers so that they respond as Lydia did. Number two, you can pray that God would free them from the slavery of their idols. Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God. Though you used to be slaves in sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. All of us have idols in our lives, whether we're a believer or not. And they're typically categorized in one of three areas. The idol of significance, the idol of pleasure, the idol of control. In this city, we see those idols often. I want and I have the idol of significance. I want it to be all about me. I had a guy tell me this week, the idol of pleasure. Everybody's living for the weekend. The idol of control. I want to control my destiny. I want to control my future. We control nothing. It's all in the hands of God. And you know what? When people finally begin to realize that idol in my life is not fulfilling, it's not satisfying, we typically see people begin to turn to God. Would you pray that God would expose the idols and smash the idols of people in your life? Number three, pray that God will open a door for the gospel to be spoken to them. Colossians 4, 2 and 3, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Paul says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am now in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Number four, pray that God would send someone to tell them about Jesus. 
Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then, this is Paul, in 10, 1, he talks about having a burden and praying for people that they would be saved. Now listen to what he says at the end of verse t- uh, chapter 10. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? That doesn't mean from a stage. That means conversationally relaying the gospel. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are your feet today when you take the gospel to those people in your lives. I want to give a word of testimony this morning and say, I have prayed for family members that God would send people in their life. God has answered every single one of those prayers. Would you pray that God would send people to take the gospel to those people. And then number five, the first four are prayers for them. The last prayer is for you. Pray that God will give you a burden for them. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is that God would allow them to be saved. I pray that you experience a burden for people in your life that don't know Jesus. I want to ask you to do something. Take this card that we gave to you when you came in this morning. This explains the Mission 555 strategy. Five networks, five opportunities, five people. On the back, there are five spaces for each of your networks. Some of you may not have anybody in a specific network. I personally don't work with anybody that's not saved, hopefully. (laughs) I don't have anybody in a vocational network. Some of you may not have five people in one of these categories. I want to encourage you to do something right now. Even as we begin to sing this last song, I want you to begin to fill out this card. Begin to fill out this card with the names of people in these networks. Can I give you a promise today? I'm going to do it. On Tuesday morning, if our staff hasn't already done it, we're going to take some time in staff meeting to fill out this card as well as a staff. I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. I want to encourage you to take this card begin to write down the names. I believe you begin to write down the names. You begin to think about these people. I believe God will supernaturally begin to give you a burden for these people. And then can I ask you to do something very specific? For the next 21 days, I want to ask you to do something. Take this card with names of people. You put it by your bed, by your nightstand. And in the morning when you wake up, I want to ask you to pray these five prayers we just walked through. And pray for every one of these people on your list by name. When you wake up, when you go to bed, for 21 days. Why 21 days? There's a little bit of science that says if you do something for 21 days in a row, it becomes a habit. I want to begin to engage you in the habit of praying for people that don't know Jesus. I'd like to go one step further, and then I want to close this. And say this morning, if you'd like for us to help remind you of this opportunity over the next 21 days... We're going to begin this text messaging deal every single morning for the next 21 days. That will send you a prayer, we'll send you a verse, we'll help remind you to pray for these people, remind you of these five prayers for the next 21 days. We're going to leave that on the screen for just a moment. And if you want to text it in, Better LA to 24587, beginning tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., you'll get a text message that reminds you to pray for people on this list. Now, can I ask some of you this morning? Have you been saved? Have you trusted your life to Jesus? Have you come to the place where you've recognized your sin, 
God's solution for that sin was on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. That if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It would be insane for me to preach a message on telling other people about Jesus and not take advantage of the opportunity this morning. Maybe you came today. You've never trusted your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to do that. Nothing magical and mystical about it. Not going to say anything you don't want to say. Not making you stand on the stage. Do anything you don't want to do. Simply have a moment as we begin to sing where you confess before God, God, I know who I am before you. I know my sin has offended you. Jesus, I trust you to forgive me of my sin. Would you save me today? I want to invite you to do that if you've never done it today. Let me pray for us. Lord, God, thank you for the moment that we have together as a church to challenge us, to encourage us, to convict us, Lord. God, this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit of the living God, would you address our fears today? Would you pacify and soothe those fears with the understanding that what you think about us is way more relevant than what anybody in our life thinks about us, Lord. May our burden increase for those around us. May you give us opportunity even this week to speak the name of Jesus to someone. God, we love you. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you for the sacrifice on the cross for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.